Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Cool Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. Seventy-five years ago this May, something incredible occurred. Now, to understand what happened, we need to go back. Back to the winter of 1944-1945. Imagine you're freezing cold, but there is no coal or wood left to start a fire, so you simply layer up with every piece of clothing you own. You're so hungry that you drink as much water as possible just to fill your stomach. Sometimes, all you can do is stay in bed and hope that sleep conquers your hunger. When you do eat, your meals consist mostly of sugar beet cakes because that's the only thing the Nazis haven't stripped from your land. If you're lucky, you find a kilogram of rotting carrots, which are heavily overpriced, but at least that allows you to make some sort of stew. All around you, people are starving and more and more people are unable to even get out of bed. Some have even started to die. And yet there's hope. For not 100 kilometers away are Canadian soldiers fighting desperately to liberate your country because they know how dire the food situation is becoming. Yet, the going for the Canadians is slow. Their enemy is stubborn. And your food is running out. Soon there may be nothing to eat at all. This is Season 5, Episode 17, The Dutch Food Crisis and Operation Faust. Today's book recommendation is On to Victory. The Canadian Liberation of the Netherlands, written by Mark Zelke, published by Douglas and McIntyre in 2011. As all of Zelke's books are, this one is eminently readable and accessible for anyone interested in the history of the Canadian military and its liberation of the Netherlands. Strongly recommended. So let's begin. Though... Naively attempting to claim neutrality when the war broke out in 1939, the Netherlands was not spared 
the rapid advance of the Nazi war machine in the opening months of the Second World War. By late May 1940, the country was officially occupied. A Nazi administration replaced the previous Dutch one. At its head was Dr. Arthur Seizinkart, former Austrian chancellor, a key figure in bringing about the union of Austria with Nazi Germany, known as Anschluss. He was a high-ranking SS member and a personal favorite of Hitler. Nazi officials of Dutch nationality were appointed to most of the senior positions within the country at both the central and provincial levels of government. Now, while at first says Inkart approached the governance of the Netherlands with what he deemed the velvet glove approach, basically mild in terms of state repression and controlling people's lives, by the summer of 1941, the velvet glove was off and the Dutch occupation intensified. Over the course of the war, this Nazi administration effectively stripped the country of anything and everything useful to the Nazi war effort. Food and fuel, most importantly coal, were taken out of the Netherlands and sent to Germany. Any males able to work between the ages of 18 and 45 were forcibly conscripted into the German war industry and sent to factories deep within Germany. Thousands of Dutch Jews were rounded up and sent to concentration camps. By 1944, this resource extraction policy under Seizinkart was taking its toll. The country was suffering heavily. Food was becoming more and more scarce. Young men who refused to enter into the German labor program went into hiding, joined the resistance, or otherwise faced jail time and even a firing squad. The Dutch resistance continued to grow in size while it fought a running battle against both their Nazi occupiers and the hated Dutch collaborators of the Nazi regime. The cities in particular were starting to really feel the effects of the Nazi occupation policies as the urban populations continued to grow as people migrated from the smaller villages and towns throughout the country into the urban space. With food stocks declining and the urban population growing rapidly, a disaster was looming. Now, the Canadians first entered the Netherlands in the autumn of 1944. 21st Army Group Commander General Bernard Montgomery's attempt to cross the Rhine, the infamous Operation Market Garden, had failed by late September 1944, and this left a salient around the Dutch town of Nijmegen. Thus, for the next two months, 1st Canadian Army set about stabilizing this salient, and by November 1944, much of southern Holland was liberated, while the vast remainder of the country north of the Vaal River remained in Nazi hands. Into this small portion of the southern Netherlands poured immense amounts of material and men, not just of 1st Canadian Army, but of 21st Army Group as a whole, of which, of course, 1st Canadian Army belonged. Canadian soldiers, now living and working in the Netherlands, were quickly introduced to the brutal ramifications of the Nazi occupation regime. 
And while they were able to bring relief to the Dutch within Canadian-occupied territory, all they could do is watch and listen to the horrible tales of the Dutch still under Nazi occupation, especially during what would come to be known as the Hunger Winter. The Hunger Winter was the culmination of years of the Nazi occupation regime stripping the country of its food and fuel. The three and a half million Dutch still under occupation during the winter of 44-45 had no coal to keep them warm and were dangerously close to having no food at all. One Dutch civilian wrote how their weekly rations were reduced to one loaf of bread six pounds of sugar beets, and two ounces of skim milk powder. Another recalled that during Christmas, rations went down further to three and a half pieces of bread and two potatoes a day with only the children receiving skim milk. It was not uncommon for Dutch civilians to ride their bicycles nearly a hundred kilometers in a single day simply to chase down the rumor of available vegetables or meat on some farm well outside the city limits. Others simply stayed in bed. The lack of food was having noticeable physical effects on the youth. The average weight of a 14-year-old Dutch boy in 1940 was 90 pounds. By the winter of 1944, it was 81 and a half pounds. For girls, it was even worse. The average weight of a 14-year-old girl in 1944 was 15 and a half pounds lighter than in 1940, and the average height was two inches shorter. Simply put, hunger was already taking its toll, and food stocks were close to completely running out. By around this time, this winter of 44-45, reports from the occupied Netherlands were circulating amongst the Allied leadership. Even the Dutch royal family, currently residing in London, were issuing direct pleas to Churchill for something to be done to alleviate the desperate situation. And at this point, fairly serious discussions were occurring on what to do. Some in Allied high command, including for a brief period Supreme Commander Dwight Eisenhower himself, believed the best way to deal with this issue was simply to end the war as rapidly as possible. You see, in Eisenhower's mind and in the minds of others, no serious relief effort could be undertaken by the Allies with all their resources focused on fighting and defeating the Nazi war machine. And thus, for the first few months of 1945, even while reports from the occupied Netherlands were becoming more and more severe, the Allies, and thus First Canadian Army, continued their focus on the fighting. By mid-March 1945, 1st Canadian Army had helped drive the Germans back across the Rhine River. While nearly every other army was tasked with crossing Germany's long-standing natural western border, 1st Canadian Army was given different orders. The Canadians were told to advance north and liberate the remainder of the Netherlands before turning east into northwestern Germany and then occupying the western half of Lower Saxony. Thus, 
Most of the media attention was on the Rhine crossing, and very little was paid to 1st Canadian Army's efforts in the Netherlands. Yet, 1st Canadian Army would be faced with an incredibly challenging task. The men of 1st Canadian Army, first of all, were going to be dealing with stubborn pockets of enemy, some of them German, but also many collaborators in the form of a variety of SS groups made up of Nazi-sympathetic Belgians, Dutch, French, and other European nationals who knew that were they to be captured, they would most likely be facing a firing squad in their home country. Second of all, and even more challenging, the Canadians were going to be liberating a country whose people were near starvation. Now, the country was going to be divided between Canada's two Canadian Corps formations. One Canadian Corps had only recently arrived from Italy and would be tasked with liberating the western half of the Netherlands. This western half included the largest population and the major urban centers. Two Canadian Corps would be tasked with the remainder of the country, effectively the eastern half all the way north to the sea. Now, the going was slow, and the enemy held out stubbornly. By late April 1945, two Canadian Corps had made fairly significant advances northwards, while one Corps was stuck in the west, held up by a series of well-prepared defensive positions along a series of small rivers that cut the country in half. This was known as the Greb Line. This meant that the huge chunk of the Dutch population in the major urban centers still remained under the shrinking Nazi occupation. By this point, rumors were running rampant of acute starvation in the Western Netherlands, again, the most urban of the Netherlands. And these were trickling back into the Canadian lines and being passed all the way up to Eisenhower and even Churchill. Something had to be done. It was feared that were the Canadians simply to continue fighting, they would end up liberating a country of corpses. Folks, I just want to take a quick break to let you know that we rely heavily on your donations. And if you like what you hear, and if you're one of our thousands of listeners, we could use a dollar or 50 cents or two bucks or whatever you can spare, especially during these hard times. And we know that many of you are struggling these days, and Cool Canadian History is hoping that our podcast can bring just a little bit of joy, a little bit of entertainment during these difficult times. And if you do have a little bit of extra change kicking around you can go to our facebook page you can go to our website and you'll see links to paypal or patreon both of these links provide safe and secure ways to donate to the podcast paypal gives you the option to donate one time while patreon allows you to set up regular preset donations so if you want to donate like two bucks for every episode we publish patreon allows you to set that up paypal allows you to give monthly donations on the regular we survive heavily on these donations, and every dollar donated is extremely important in allowing us to continue to bring you this history program. We hope, too, that during 
these rather unpredictable and anxiety-ridden times that many of you are starting to understand fully the importance of, of access to podcasts and music and things like this. So we hope that more and more of you are jumping on board the podcast bandwagon and joining us here in listener land. And don't forget on Facebook, on Apple Podcasts, you can leave us a rating and a comment. We love to hear from you. So please don't be shy, and thank you to everyone who has donated. We could not keep doing this without you. And now back to our regularly scheduled program. Okay, so 1st Canadian Corps is stuck at the Greb Line, while senior Allied military and political officials are realizing that something other than simply defeating the Nazis needs to be done to help the Dutch people. At this point, a fairly unusual series of negotiations occurred between representatives from Eisenhower's headquarters, representatives from 21st Army Group headquarters, representatives from 1st Canadian Army headquarters, members of the Dutch resistance, and officials from the Nazi occupation regime. Effectively, All of these parties were aware of the growing issues within occupied Netherlands, and the Canadians particularly hoped to leverage the war's near end in order to negotiate some form of relief effort into the Nazi-controlled parts of the country. After some persuasion, Arthur Sazencard agreed. You see, some say he hoped that by allowing relief efforts to occur, he might be looked upon favorably in the post-war world. Thus, the stage was set for Operation Mana, Operation Chowhound, and Operation Faust. Now, Operation Mana and Chowhound were massive airdrop operations by the Royal Air Force and the U.S. Air Force, respectively. I should say, listeners, just as a side note, that to this day, Chowhound is one of the more uncomfortable choices for any operational name of the Second World War, considering the reasons for it being launched in the first place. Nonetheless, starting on April 29th, British and American bombers that had once wreaked devastation on enemy populations now brought desperately needed relief in the form of food drops. From 29th April to 7th May, nearly 11,000 tons of food were dropped per day, or more accurately, floated down via parachute. As one Dutch survivor, Henry Vandersee, wrote in his autobiography, I remember very vividly this most moving moment of the war, when 40 heavily loaded planes flew low over the town and dropped their goods on the heath at Kralo. Our lane so sad since the oak trees had disappeared that winter and so shabby with its neglected houses, was full of waving and shouting people, while the green and brown-colored food bombs standing out sharply against the pale blue sky came hurtling down. It gave me goose pimples, and nobody cared about the tears that were running down all our faces." Now, while the British and Americans brought relief by air, the Canadians brought relief by ground. What came to be known as Operation Faust, so fist in German, would be conducted by the men of one Canadian corps commanded by Charles Foulkes. 
Now, Folks and his staff developed a plan whereby convoys of trucks would travel from the Canadian side through the German lines and then to a town called Rennen. It's about 25 kilometers to the west of Arnhem and just behind the German front lines. At Rennen, the supplies would be dropped off and the Dutch Red Cross and members of the Dutch resistance would take care of further distribution. The only stipulation Sazenkart gave the Canadians was that they could only operate on the roads from 0700 to 1800. Thus, starting on the 2nd of May at 0700, a dozen convoys of 30 trucks each set out on their relief mission. From then on, for an 11-hour period, from the 2nd of May until the 7th of May, the date of the German surrender in the Netherlands, Canadian convoys went back and forth from the Canadian supply depot to Renan, delivering 1,000 tons of food per day. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Captain Robert Parkinson was commanding one such convoy, and he talked about how each truck had a white flag mounted on the front fender, but also weapons discreetly hidden in the back in case of trouble. He recalled, and I quote, We knew we were taking food to the Dutch people. It was interesting and somewhat scary as we passed German soldiers who were fully armed. We offloaded the food at the side of the road and turned it over to some kind of Dutch authorities. End quote. Everywhere the convoys went, they were swarmed with hungry yet ecstatic people. Famous Canadian author Farley Mowat participated in this operation and wrote of his experience. And he says, and I quote, In towns and villages across the flooded land, the convoy found itself engulfed and almost washed over the dikes by a wave of humanity. Flowers crushed wetly, Underneath the tires, women, fat or bony, young or aged, clambered aboard the vehicles until some trucks disappeared from view entirely. One of the major problems encountered was that the Dutch were so weakened by the starvation, they had a difficult time carrying the crates of food. One British officer recalled how him and his men had to convince nearby German soldiers to assist the Dutch in carrying the food. He recalled, and again I quote, they were not happy about it, but they eventually obliged, end quote. Once Germany had formally surrendered on the 7th of May, 1945, Operation Faust was ramped up. Now, for 24 hours a day, Canadian trucks drove supplies into newly liberated Dutch territory. By the 10th of May, First Canadian Corps Civil Affairs had assumed control of the relief efforts, organizing medical personnel, feeding teams, soup kitchens, and supply delivery. Thus, it was at this time that Operation Faust officially came to an end. 
There is no question that the relief efforts by the British, Americans, and Canadians played a significant role in preventing mass acute starvation. While it would take weeks for the Dutch to return to their pre-war levels of food consumption, and sometimes in some areas months, a humanitarian crisis of epic proportions had been averted. What about the Nazi governor Arthur Say's Inkart, you ask? Did he receive favorable treatment after the war because of his role in the relief efforts? Well, listeners, while he claimed his conscience was untroubled and that he had acted always with the aim of improving the conditions of the Dutch people, the evidence against him said otherwise. During the Nuremberg trials, he was found guilty of war crimes and crimes against humanity. On October 16, 1946, at the age of 54, a once shining star in the Nazi administration, Arthur Sazinkart, was executed by hanging. Good riddance. For the Canadians, who were the first ones to enter the newly liberated Western Netherlands, they entered as heroes. For a nation that had spent four years watching its people, its food, its fuel, its resources, and its freedom taken from it, the arrival of Canadian soldiers brought to the Dutch hope, survival, and the glorious realization that the war had finally ended. Today, the relationship between Canada and the Netherlands is one of the strongest legacies of the entire war. For many Dutch, it was Canada that liberated their country. Every Christmas Eve, all across the land, Dutch children place candles on the graves of those that served and died in the liberation of their country, a yearly form of remembrance. The majority of those graves belong to young Canadians, young Canadians who paid the ultimate sacrifice so that others could have freedom. I want to thank you all for listening today. A reminder, you can find us on Facebook, you can find us on Instagram, and you can find us at our homepage, coolcanadianhistory.com. And you can find me on Twitter, at DocBoris, that's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. Thank you for tuning in, and stay cool. Stay cool.